0: Welcome to the American Institute of Stress's official podcast, Finding Contentment. The goal of this podcast is to highlight new information about stress and stress management techniques. While we understand that stress is a very personalized issue and different for everyone, we hope to help you find your own way to contentment. Greetings, everyone. Hello, welcome back. This is your host and executive director for the American Institute of Stress, Will Heckman. Thanks again for joining us today. Hopefully, you've been listening to these podcasts, if you have not, these podcasts focus on stress and stress-related issues. So please remember to follow us at stress.org and send in those comments and reviews. I love hearing from you guys. Also, if you are stressed and you don't know where to start on your journey to feeling better, well, AIS has an easy, confidential, online self-assessment tool. It's called the Stress Mastery Questionnaire. You may have heard me mention it before. And you can take a quick online self-assessment and receive personalized feedback on your stress risk scores in form of a one-page personal stress profile followed by a detailed nine-page stress report. You also get a 66-page stress mastery guide and workbook. All you have to do is just go to stress.org and look for the SMQ. All right. So I think we can all agree that stress is found everywhere, and on this show we have discussed with some of the leading stress experts on the different ways that we can improve our lives and reduce our stress. Most of the time, many of us think about stress relief. We take the time to think, if we take the time to think about it at all, most often we think about things like breathing exercises, relaxing yoga poses, or maybe even an intense exercise session like boxing or spinning but what about food not that those other practices aren't great ways to relieve and manage stress but they sort of steal the spotlight if you will you know diet is often overlooked as part of the stress fighting picture and today we feel too rushed or stressed to eat well but good diet and nutrition Well, it's an important stress management tool, and when our bodies are poorly fed, stress takes an even greater toll on our health. So nutrition and stress are kind of interlinked. And as we get busy and and stressed, we tend to make poor food choices that can actually increase our stress levels and cause other problems. I know that it is easier to grab prepackaged foods and that they're most likely less healthy. Or we may do this because we crave less healthy foods when we are stressed. When we only get too busy, so busy, we forget to eat, or we even skip meals and we fill those in with unhealthy foods, whatever the reason. When we eat an unhealthy diet, we may experience short term or even long term consequences. We may feel less energetic, and this lack of energy can affect our productivity and even increase our stress levels. So today we're talking about how to improve our diet and positively affect our stress. Joining us today is Shanna Tatum. Shanna is a registered dietitian nutritionist and a member of the Dietitian's Integrative and Functional Medicine Practice Group with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and member of the Institute of Functional Medicine where particular attention is given to individualized and personal care and she's especially interested in the relationship between mental health and dietary and lifestyle influences. You can find out a lot more about Shanna and in the Academy if you go to Shattam, ShannaTatumRD.com. Let me say that again, ShannaTatumRD.com. Shanna, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Yes, thank you, Will. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here today.
0: Uh, you know, I read your article recently, it was titled Stress and Eating More Fiber. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about diets in general. Uh, I've recently changed my diet, mostly just to cut out sugars. Uh, but in the past, I have tried different diets, uh, Paleo, Atkins, Whole30, and some of the others. You're a dietitian; You know more about this stuff than I do. So the first thing I want to ask you about is how do people find a diet that will work and is right for them
1: well first let me congratulate you on reducing your sugar intake that's no simple task Um, my
0: hope addictive
1: my hope is that you feel better i do i feel much better good that's encouraging Uh, i do get asked often you know what is the perfect diet And there really is not a perfect diet, blank to blanket, for everyone. You know, we all come into this world with a unique set of genes, a unique biochemistry, and then we compound that with, you know, particular sleep habits, with what uh, a sedentary or a, a very highly physical active lifestyle. And, and what kind of relationships we have, what our community is. So all of those things are factors that can cause food and diet to play a role uh, in your health or to lead you down the path of more chronic disease. So now that we know that lifestyle factors are so important, we can spend some time looking at them. And I think a lot of your guests have shared ways to do that. But when it comes to food specifically, you know, they're generally looking at reducing sugar, reducing highly processed foods, eliminating inflammatory oils that are higher in omega-6 fatty acids, um, looking at getting more fiber, just eating more whole foods are important. But more than that, um, sometimes I I talk about with my patients kind of three things, is we're talking about what you eat, which is some of the things that I alluded to, you know, really including those nutrient dense foods. There's a brilliant uh, nutritionist, Dr. Deanna Minnick, and she talks about color over calories. So when we can start to think about, you know, eating the rainbow and making sure we get all of those good antioxidants on our plate. Yeah. So thinking about what we eat, but two, thinking about how we eat. And you mentioned in your intro about not eating in a rushed way. You know, when we can bring more mindfulness to the dinner table, when we can sit in a place of gratitude, that engages the full power of our digestive system. It allows all of the digestive enzymes to be secreted, for our stomach acid to be properly working. And so when we are slowed down and we have more mindful practice about our food, then we can digest and assimilate it better. So we could be eating all this beautiful color and all these good nutrients, but if we're eating so fast and our systems are compromised, we're not going to benefit from all of that. So what you eat, how you eat, and then when you eat, we're starting to see more research about the effects of circadian rhythm. Hmm. on our health. So we'll talk in a little bit about sleep, but when we eat, making sure we're not eating too late into the night, that we allow time for our insulin response to be reduced. And we're starting to see some benefits in our health with that.
0: You know, you made two really good points that really hit home with me. Uh, One is eating too quickly. And I've had jobs where it was such an issue um, many, many years ago, I was a police officer and you sometimes don't get that half hour to an hour to eat. So you, you get into this habit. And later on, I I was an educator for 30 years, same problem. You don't, you get into this habit of eating really fast because you have to get it over with. So you can get back to, or you don't know what interruptions are going to come so you end up eating really fast. And the other thing you mentioned that is very interesting was eating too late into the night. Yes. I have had friends tell me um, that their only diet, and it affected their health in a very positive way, is they didn't eat after sundown. Mm-hmm. They just stopped eating after sundown. And I, and I asked them because they looked better, they lost weight, and they, they said they felt better. So those, those two things you said really hit home. But I also wanted to ask you exactly how does eating a healthy diet and doing the things you spoke about help reduce our stress? Because I think they're interlinked.
1: They are linked. You're exactly right. And uh, we're starting to see more research about this. So a couple of things. Um, One is this amazing colonization of bacteria, yeast, fungi, protozoa that live, all those microorganisms that live in the intestinal tract, we're finding that they do so much for us. Uh, It's it's created this bidirectional communication between the gut and the brain. And so we know that the neurochemistry in our brain relies on so many of the vitamins and minerals, amino acids that we get from the diet. Those would be things like our B vitamins, vitamin C, magnesium, and then, of course, just the protein, you know, the the basis of amino acids like tryptophan that converts into serotonin, which converts into melatonin. So we're talking about, you know, the energy that's required to make these balanced neurotransmitters that then make us have proper circadian rhythm. So to separate out sleep and stress and and diet is just something we can't do when we really look at the science of the gut microbiome. Well, it makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think so too. The other thing is besides our neurochemistry is, you know, as we talk specifically about stress and our cortisol response, those stress hormones like cortisol and epinephrine, those require vitamin C, they require zinc, they require magnesium for all of their processing and without those from the diet either those hormones can become fatigued and reduced and then start to have imbalance in other areas of the body like our insulin and blood sugar regulation. So having a diet that is rich in those key micronutrients is a huge step towards reducing our stress.
0: You know it's, it's- It only makes sense because the people listening, you know that when you're feeling bad, you can reach for food that will make you feel better. So it only stands to reason that if you're eating badly, it's going to make you feel worse. You know, but a lot of people don't think about it, even if they don't think about it in scientific terms, just that on a a very layman kind of level, I feel better when I eat a quart of ice cream well you're going to feel worse later. Uh, In your article you also stated that stress can be a player in many intestinal conditions. I spoke with a friend of mine who's an ER nurse recently and she told me that the most common complaint that people have when they come to the ER is intestinal problems. And the reason that we were talking about it is because I have ended up in the ER because of an intestinal problem more than once.
1: Is that right?
0: Yeah. And it was and it is unbelievably painful. You have a million nerve endings in your stomach and and elsewhere. So I, I wanted to ask you what is the relationship between stress and our guts? And you you've covered a little bit, but I think people who are listening, who are stressed out right away. You can see them putting their hand on their stomach. going, oh, God, this is giving me a stomach ache.
1: Yeah. How is that definitely. happening? Definitely. Well, you've heard those terms. Oh, it's, it's gut wrenching. Yes. Or, or I have a gut feeling about mm. this. You know, those, those are real feelings. They're they just, as you said, nerve endings, we have an immense supply of nerves that communicate through the uh, nervous system that are in our gut. And stress is definitely a player in things like IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which such a large amount of our population has. And it's just this collective group of uh, symptoms that most uh, conventional doctors kind of struggle with the right way to treat. So we see IBS, uh, we also see IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, as, as a result of stress in the gut. We see sometimes food sensitivities, um, things like peptic ulcer, and even GERD, gastroesophageal mm-hmm. reflux disease, can certainly be triggered by stress. The things that it also does besides these conditions is it can um, change the motility in the gut, meaning our transit time. Once food leaves the stomach and travels down through the small intestines to the colon and then out the anus, it can change that motility either to be slow, where we might see things like constipation, or it could speed it up where we see things like diarrhea, those, both of those present their own challenges then as far as intestinal health. Uh, sometimes we can see a change in our secretions from the intestine, like the the enzymes, all of the things that help to digest our food. Those things can be altered. We can see something uh, called intestinal permeability happen where uh, changes in the diet from stress or insults from Antibiotics or herbicides can, can actually create um, a, an opening in the intestinal cells where some of the undigested proteins and fragments from bacteria can move into the bloodstream, creating an immune response. So stress can have pretty big uh, impacts on our, on our health
0: and and you made a really good point you know when you go to doctors their go-to for for intestinal problems because they don't always know what to say or what to do it's um, kind of a gray area so doctors practice medicine so the first thing they do is give you medicine and and I think speaking to someone like you we can learn that well, you don't necessarily have to get on a medication. You can change some of the foods, some of your diets, and do away with these problems. I did. Um, so, one of the things I wanted to ask you before we get to the the right foods to eat, I, I wanted to ask you: Are there foods that we should absolutely stay away from? And for God's sake, please don't say ice cream; <laughs> it just would ruin my day. But is there foods and and I I found, guys, I found low-sugar and low-carb ice cream that actually tastes good. Huh? If you want to know, <laughs> leave a comment. I'll tell you what it is. But is there foods we should absolutely stay away from?
1: Okay, first you have to tell me your favorite ice cream flavor.
0: Well, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a toss-up. It, um, butter pecan is always, it's right yes. up there, you know. It's delicious. And then now they have these, these ice creams with butter pecan and caramel mixed in them, you know. Oh.
1: So yeah. good. I'm an ice cream
0: fan too. See, there you go. And it's hard to get away from it. It's like, so I, I, I had to find, and, and if you never eat the stuff that you like, you start to, your diet becomes your enemy. And that, you never want that to happen. You don't want to have an adversarial relationship with food that you eat. You know, all the things we do for stress, we could not do them, we could not meditate. We cannot sit down and do exercises and things like that. You can't not eat. Correct. So you have to have a good relationship with your diet. So every once in a while, I have found really good substitutes. I don't eat as much of it as I used to, but every once in a while, I've been learned not to, to say not to have a cheat day, but to have it a treat day. Exactly. Um, and, and you so – having those, but are there foods we should absolutely stay away from just
1: Across the board, you know, and, and part of that restriction, I think is, is something that causes more stress. I mean, you're speaking to it right now where we say, I can't have this, I can't have that. I can't have that. You're actually creating more of a stress response, more of this cortisol kind of uh, communication in the body than if you were to really be present with that bowl of ice cream that you're going to have and derive joy from instead of beating yourself up for having it. You are the only one that, that can decide for yourself what's the right food to eat or not eat. I can guide you. I can make suggestions. I can provide evidence of the science that is going to benefit your health. But at the end of the day, you know, it's you making those decisions, you deciding what your beliefs and perceptions about food are. Um, Dr. Jeffrey Bland talks about uh, food in its core, you know, state is really information for our cells. It directs creation of DNA, making of proteins for all kinds of things, you know, in the body that are necessary. And when we can decide that food is really information for us to to have all these amazing reactions happen in the body, sometimes it's easier to make those better choices in our favor when we think about what's on the end of our fork, what is this really going to do for me chemically in the body? But as you know, we pile on cultural beliefs and traditions and emotion. You know, I yesterday was my mother-in-law's birthday, And she makes the. She used to make this delicious banana pudding. And I'm from Texas. We love banana pudding here. And I can just think about a banana pudding dessert, and I just feel this warmth in my heart and this real nurturing, you know, feeling in my body. But it really does not have that much nutritional value. So that would be a choice where I would decide, okay, but, but it, it's going to bring me some joy. I know that it's going to you know, be happy. And then as I modulate my choices throughout the day, I just know to bring in those more nutrient-dense foods because we're seeing, too, this whole other category of um, disordered eating called orthorexia where people are afraid of all foods, that mm. all foods are going to start to be detrimental in some way. So we never want to get to a place where we're that restrictive. But to your original question about foods that that should be maybe avoided or reduced, there are a couple of things that I do recommend to my patients. And that is exactly what you're doing, reducing refined sugar, We're seeing that sugar, you know, as we're talking about these gut conditions, it can reduce, uh, it can create more prolonged transit time in the body, maybe contributing to some constipation. It can also increase the concentration of bile acids, which could then show some changes in our cholesterol metabolism. It also creates a, a system of inflammation, which, as you know from so many of your guests, inflammation is really kind of the root of a lot of chronic disease. So, when we can reduce our refined sugar, I think that is definitely a good choice. The second thing that I like to teach my patients about are when we can, because budget and convenience, you know, those are two pretty big driving factors. But when you can, try to look for foods that are not contaminated with herbicide and pesticide from glyphosate. This is um, one of the top sprayed uh, pesticides in America. You know, when we look at corn, soy, wheat, those top crops, which we see in so many of our processed convenience foods, are contaminated with glyphosate. And what we're seeing in the research is that it actually is classified as a probable carcinogen to humans. Hmm. And so this has effects, um, like I talked about earlier, with the intestinal permeability that tends to weaken the joints that holds those intestinal cells together, creating intestinal permeability. So one of the things that uh, a place that I advise my patients to look is that the environmental working group, the EWG.org, they have a good list called the Clean 15 that looks at um, the top 15 types of produce that have been tested for the lowest residue of herbicides and pesticides. So when you're buying those, those can be conventional then they have the list of the dirty dozen that include those foods that really are better to buy organic. We don't, most people don't have the budget to buy all organic, all grass-fed, pastured foods or wild-caught seafood. But when you can limit your exposure to glyphosate by buying from the dirty dozen and the clean 15, I think you're taking a big step towards protecting your intestinal health.
0: I learned a lot about that. And I actually had an organic, am sorry, garden.
1: Oh, wonderful. <laughs>
0: and the reason I did was um, my wife is a cancer survivor and she was going through chemo and they talked about, you know, all these pesticides, things we eat. And me being the neurotic person I am, decided, okay, fine, I don't trust anything. I'm growing my own stuff. And luckily, I have the room to do it, so I grew a lot of produce. I ended up with more than I need, so if anyone's listening and would like to grow some of their own produce, it is really not that hard. Um, and what a
1: beautiful way to reduce stress,
0: right? It, it was. It was, you know, it, it's a little bit of work, but I had like a an eighth of an acre. You don't need to do that. You could do <laughs> it on your, you could do it on your patio and grow tomatoes and peppers and all kinds of stuff. And, and it's free. I, you buy a pepper and you throw out the seeds. Don't throw them out. Th- put them in an envelope. And I grew peppers for years from that envelope. Yeah, so I, it's really, you know, a good point that we really should be paying more attention to what we eat. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to ask you, be, because I've been hearing a lot about, and I think you mentioned it before, probiotics. I hear it mostly from my wife. And microfloria. When you first start learning about that stuff, and you look at the um, nutrients you can buy, or, or and, and they talk about billions of microfloria. It's, it's overwhelming. Billions, you know. Can you give us an idea of how that works in layman's terms so even somebody like I can understand sure, it?
1: Sure, sure. So you're right. There there's something like 100 trillion microorganisms in the body. And that I don't even have a concept <laughs> of yeah. how big that is. But I do I do try to understand it in the sense of if I think about, you know, humans, we have 23,000 genes. And these genes, you know, have now been sequenced and we understand a lot more about what they do for us. But if we, if we're looking at that 100 trillion microorganisms, that's over 3 million genes. Mm -hmm. So if we're, if we, if we see this amazing human being that's comprised of 23,000 genes, but then we think about all those microorganisms that are 3 million genes, it's, it's, out of this world to understand.
0: Right. It's hard to get your head around.
1: It is. And and we we're starting to see, you know, nutrition science is pretty new in in the world and and we're starting to see more and more research done about the benefits of these, you know, 100 trillion microorganisms and they're everywhere. They're our skin, our sinuses, our ears, our intestinal tract. Um it's just everywhere and they have many, many benefits. Some of the of the things you know, it starts at birth with the baby coming through the vaginal canal and being inoculated, and then when breastfeeding can occur, we can have the benefit of that transfer too. But we see that you know, even some of these strains that they're studying, that by age three, some of those strains are set for life. Mm-hmm. So if that early years, if those early years were not um, inoculated well, some some of those strains, you know, may not be as robust as we need. And then, you know, they they do all of these beautiful things for us, like they make uh, vitamin K, they make many uh, B vitamins like biotin and folic acid and even B12. And and as we talked about neurochemistry earlier, those are all those important cofactors that we need for serotonin and dopamine uh, to keep that good balance. Another really good thing that they do is they make something called short-chain fatty acids. And these are starting to show um, great benefit, not only for just the health of our intestines, but also in supporting keeping colon cancer mm. reduced, the rates of colon cancer, because they they induce this kind of cell death of those cancer cells. So we also see correlation with obesity and improved insulin sensitivity. There's just, you know, so many things that these are these bacteria are starting to do for us. We see that um, some things that interrupt that good microflora are things like um, artificial sweeteners. So as we're trying to get off, you know, sugar, sometimes I have patients that will say, "Can't I just do a diet coke or have some of these products that are are zero calorie, zero sugar sure. drinks?" But what we're doing is actually causing some negative effects to the population of our microorganisms. So we do want to be careful that that's not a long term substitution. We also see that some food additives like emulsifiers can be bad for the gut microbiota and their colonies. And we mentioned earlier about restrictive diets, people who uh, really restrict food groups, we can start to see some changes in the gut microbiota. For example, a, a ketogenic diet or the keto diet that is that is pretty big now well i do think that that has some real benefit for people um, suffering from neurological disease and seizures uh and even people with diabetes you know helping to to reduce that insulin response and create more of an insulin sensitivity you do have a tendency to have a low fiber intake so those um Missing the fiber in your diet can certainly change the microbiota. And then, of course, antibiotics, medications like acid blocking drugs, all of those things can also disrupt it. But what we can do, and, and this is probably what your wife has been sharing with you, is, is have those foods in our diet that support good microbiome. And that would be fiber, which we'll talk about in a minute, but also the probiotics from from fermented foods, foods like sauerkraut or kimchi or cultured foods from yogurt and kefir. You know, these are foods that for centuries around the world have been a mainstay in the diet and here in our westernized world are not as popular. Mm. And so if we can bring those back into the diet, I think that we can see some improved health conditions.
0: Okay. Well, she is... Um got some sub- probiotic supplements so yes. you know yes. i just include that it's not that big a deal to yeah. like, but people need to understand something about supplements and and i try to explain this to a couple of my my buddies and it's not like taking a drug you, you don't take a one probiotic and feel the effect i mean you, you need to make it as part of your life and like a vitamin it's it, you need to take it for a while and then you'll start to see effects and one of the biggest complaints i get and i wanted to talk to you about that because i think diet plays a major role in it and that is sleep issues Mm. we even talked about eating late at night in the american institute of stress at stress.org we get questions all the time and you would be surprised how many of them are sleep related insomnia, um, just all kinds of sleep issues. Those sleep issues cause other issues. So I wanted to ask you how diet in general can affect our sleep.
1: In many ways, you know, we're starting to see uh, increased chronic health conditions for people who are short sleepers, which they kind of define that as less than seven hours of sleep a night. There's even now, you know, um, a syndrome about shift workers who are uh, night workers and and how their circadian rhythm is off.
0: And every teacher.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Who work around the clock. Okay. Um, and the police officers too, kind yep. of as you were speaking about earlier.
0: I've done that um, rotating shift, and I'll tell you, most police departments that have done research into it have found it to be very detrimental to their staff's health. So
1: it, it t- certainly is. Yeah.
0: So that's why I wanted to ask you about diet. mm -hmm,
1: So we see things like you mentioned, you know, depression, arthritis, diabetes, heart disease, even asthma. I know that you you have suffered from that in the past. All of these conditions have been associated with, you know, being, getting uh, not enough sleep. it it does change, you know, the circadian rhythm. So when we talked about earlier, those cofactors that are needed for the synthesis of some of the neurochemistry, you know, we take in good protein in the form of fish and eggs and uh, beef and poultry, beans and legumes. Those can be converted into the amino acid tryptophan and then from there moves into serotonin, which then can also make melatonin, which signals, you know, that it's time for sleep. So some things that we can do to help support sleep is one that you mentioned about not eating too late at night, because that that all of the energy that it takes for digestion and insulin that sometimes can interrupt that beautiful rhythm that releases those hormones to signal sleep. So it helps with our you know having more of a stable blood sugar throughout the night so that sustain sustained sleep occurs. And sometimes, too, it switches us from that adrenaline response to more of the rest and digest response, which right. you know we have the two branches of the uh, nervous system, our sympathetic response which is that fight or flight, which is so much of the information on your with your organization. But we also have the parasympathetic nervous system response, which is more of the rest and digest. And when we're in that state more often, we can have the reduced cortisol response. We have all the engagement of our enzymes for digestion and stomach acid. And, and the assimilation of those nutrients happen because when we're in that stress state of fight or flight, the body's not really too concerned about processing, you know, the food that we just ate. It wants all of the uh, glycogen in the muscles and all of the blood flow to the heart so that we can respond to stress. So making sure we're not eating foods that are going to raise those responses, like caffeine later in the day, that actually will interrupt our melatonin response. So it's not just the cortisol, but it's also the melatonin. And then also alcohol, which is something I've been hearing from my patients during the shutdown, is an increased reliance of alcohol, just kind of ease the tension. And, and, you know, that one glass of wine turns into two or three glasses of wine and, and that will really interrupt something called the vagal tone, which when we go back to all the nerves and in the intestines that we talked about in the beginning, the vagus nerve is one of the largest nerves in the body. And it is sometimes related to people call it the sixth sense because it it, it offers something like 80 to 90 percent of the incoming information that we receive from stimuli. And and alcohol can interrupt how that vagus nerve works, which then can create dysbiosis in the gut with that gut bacteria. So foods that we want to make sure we're including in the diet. To really support all of that good neurochemistry, would be good uh, proteins, like I mentioned, the fish, the eggs, the beef, the poultry, but also those micronutrients like magnesium and calcium, which we get not just the calcium in dairy products, but a lot of leafy greens like Swiss chard, bok choy, spinach, collard, and turnip greens which are also high in folate, which are important for all of that serotonin production too. So keeping those good micronutrients on rotation, like we talked about having a colorful plate, that can help. Avoiding too high-fat meals before bed, that can also interrupt and prolong digestion. Um, Herbs and spices, so important. You know, we don't want to forget about good herbs and spices. They not only have good antioxidant power, but some can be very adaptogenic, meaning they can help modulate the stress response. If it's too high, it can bring it down. And if it's too low, it can help, you know, moderate it. So things like uh, chamomile, passionflower, and valerian root herbal teas are all really good things to have in a rotation, especially in the evening.
0: You can only not sleep for so long. <laughs> if you got sleep issues, um, you, you really need to address them. And one of the things that you said was so true that you know, the alcohol thing, if, if you wanna have a drink or a glass of wine or a beer or something with dinner, that's one thing. If you take a drink before you go to sleep, my, me personally, I'm not a big drinker. But if I had a glass of wine before I went to sleep, yep, it helped me fall asleep. And as soon as my body assimilated that alcohol, I woke right up. At okay. 2 o'clock in the morning, I was wide awake because the, my body was done with the alcohol. So it's, a, it's just not a good idea. I think you're right. I think by eating properly and not too late, it really can have positive effects on your sleep. I think we need to use our head about that. All right. So I also, your article also spoke a lot about fiber intake. And what I wanted to ask you, how does including more fiber in our diets, just fiber itself help us stay healthy?
1: Yeah, it has a lot of different effects. Uh, Fiber really comes is when we talk about fiber, it's really in the plant material. So when we think about Fiber sources were including fruits and vegetables, beans, nuts, seeds, and grains. All of those have fiber. And, and what happens with fiber is that we don't actually digest it. Our own enzymes don't digest it, but the hundred trillion microorganisms in our gut does. And so it's like food for them. So that helps them create those B vitamins and vitamin K that we spoke about earlier and the short chain fatty acids. Um, The other thing, though, that uh, the fiber does, you know, we have really kind of two types of fiber, soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. Soluble fiber being that which can be uh, reduced with water to kind of create um, kind of like a gum that helps bind things up. And uh, that's important because it can help kind of mop up extra toxins that might be in the digestive tract, as well as extra cholesterol. So I find with my patients who have high cholesterol, that getting them uh, in to improve their fiber intake can actually help reduce their LDL cholesterol. So making sure you have good soluble fiber is, is important. And then the insoluble fiber is going to, that is the fiber that isn't digested, that is, is benefit to our, our gut microbiome. That also helps bulk our stool so that right. we have good, regular, normal uh, bowel movements every day. Uh, most Americans are not getting enough fiber, somewhere around 10 to 15 grams of fiber a day. Uh, The recommended daily allowance for fiber is somewhere between 25 and 35 grams of fiber, depending on male or female. But there are some easy ways to fix that. You know, there's some delicious, wonderful, nutritious foods that we could include in the diet that, that really help us, you know, help with our cholesterol, help feed our gut microbiome, help synthesize those vitamins and minerals and staying regular that that fiber has all of these good benefits you know um, I'm,
0: I'm really glad you said that because the we're running out of time but the last thing i wanted to ask you about is you're a dietitian tell us some foods that are naturally high in fiber that i you know i think people get the impression it takes a lot of work to get fiber into your diet give us some foods that are very easy and will naturally high in fiber
1: Sure. Uh, Pears, apples, those are two great um, examples. They have both soluble and insoluble when you think about the flesh of the fruit plus the skin of the fruit. Uh, Raspberries are a wonderful example. They have about eight grams of fiber per cup. Um, do
0: you enjoy avocado, Will? I, 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 I do. Yeah? <laughs> Usually Good. it's it's associated with uh, guacamole or, or yes. fajitas, but I yes. do. And it's funny that you mentioned raspberries because I when I'm, I'm called to dinner and I sit down, I find raspberries in my salad. I've come to love them. It's Wonderful. you know it's so easy to do.
1: Yes. Sprinkling raspberries or um, pears on a spinach salad. You know, we just have to get a little creative sometimes about what we're eating. It takes no time to throw on a handful of almonds or sesame seeds or pumpkin seeds on a salad. Um, Putting in some nut butter in your smoothie is an excellent way to get not only protein, but a good source of of some fiber in your smoothie black beans are a good source if you like black beans just yeah. a half of a cup has almost eight grams of, of fiber navy beans Kidney beans, lentils are wonderful, and these are all really good sources of protein, also. And you probably also know about oats. That's something that you see in the grocery store sure. all the time. You know the claims of of heart healthy with eating oats. So those are a, a couple of really good examples, I think, of of easy ways, good go to foods to include in your rotation. And of course, they're all. Full of color too, so you're hit, you're getting two birds with one stone.
0: Hey, well, you know I live in South Florida. If you live in South Florida, you you pretty much know what black beans are.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's
0: unavoidable. It's in every restaurant. And it's really good, and you know it, it's really not that hard to improve your diet. And it's still really enjoyable. I don't always eat right and healthy. Um, there's a couple of issues that are that. I wanted to leave us with. And one is that if I go out to eat (laughs) to a restaurant and I'm spending a bunch of money, I'm not worried about my diet. I'm worried about being entertaining, having a good time. But that meal should not bring my regular diet to a screaming halt. You just go back to it. The other issue is, is that whatever diet you choose, make sure you're enjoying it. Food is something that should be enjoyed. I've said it before, there is an old saying that some people live to eat and some people just eat to live. And I'm one of those people that live to eat. I I was even in the restaurant business at one time. So food is very important in our life. And Shanna, I want to thank you for sharing those tips with us and, and giving us a real good education and an insight to what our diet can do for us
1: oh it was my pleasure i enjoyed it well
0: and everybody you really need to learn more about functional nutrition and Shannon tatum so please go to shannontatumrd.com. they have all kinds of information there and you'll find out just how easy it is just to eat better and that it will make you feel better (laughs) <laughs> we all want to try that. <laughs> all right. Well, that brings us to the end of this show. This has been your host, Will Heckman. I wanted to thank all of you for joining us today. Please don't forget to follow this podcast. Like I said before, send in those reviews and comments. I like hearing from you guys and support from you helps keep making these podcasts possible. So I also want to remind everybody again, and just as stress is different for each of us, there is no one stress reduction management strategy that is right for everyone. So join us next time as we explore more stress management strategies and insights. And remember to visit stress.org to gather information, tools, techniques, and to live a healthier and happier and longer life. And I hope the information you heard from Shannon and myself today will help you find contentment. Good day, everybody.